Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, brought to you in part by the Iowa Soybean Association. They're driven to deliver opportunities and results for Iowa's 40,000 soybean farmers. Visit iasoybeans.com to learn more. Well, by the time you're hearing this, I will be in Brazil. I am starting a 12-day trek through the country to learn about agriculture from different facets of the industry, whether that is from corn and soybeans to coffee to cattle to sugar and cotton and much, much more. I'm taking the tour with the folks from Comstock Investments in Royal Iowa. And the reports I'm going to be sending back to you starting next week are brought to you by the folks at Pivot Bio who helped make this trip possible. So make sure that you are tuning in as I'll give you a little insight as to what I'm seeing there in Brazil. And we'll maybe see if that crop is as good as they say it is going to be. We'll be finding that out next week as well. Well, of course, the WASDE report came out earlier this week, and for the most part, they were expecting to be status quo, not a lot of changes, as we pretty well knew what the results were going to be of the 2022 harvest. Of course, it all came down to what was demand going to be, and of course, with the economies of the world being what they are, we were expecting it to see it lower just a little bit. And, of course, you can find all our detailed conversations on that at iowaagnet.com as we dive in deeper with what happened on that WASDE report. And also earlier this week, Mark Magnuson went to the Land Investment Expo that took place in Des Moines at the Iowa Events Center. Mark had the chance to visit with people who are really discussing the trends in land investment and management because the price per acre, let's face it, is something that's looking really good in attracting investors to make that purchase of property that is always a good bet usually for the future. You can find more on that story as well as everything else that we cover during the week at iowaagnet.com. Well, if you'll excuse me, I've got to go back and explore more of Brazil, so I'm going to kick things over to Russ Parker and his faith-based food for thought. Have you ever asked, what time is it? I'll bet I've asked myself and others that very question at least a half dozen times just today. Sorry for the pun, but I suspect from the beginning of time, man and woman have had their lives controlled by time. And there are so many sayings of wisdom that involve time, such as, time is money, there's nothing more important than time, turn back the hands of time, how time flies, the eleventh hour, in the nick of time, and I'm sure you probably know dozens more. Time has been on my mind big time this week. While I've recently retired from my sales job of 45 plus years, I found lots of things to do here at the radio network. Frankly, I'm not sure I've really slowed down. I'm just on a different road. I was at a church meeting earlier this week and frankly was feeling a little overwhelmed. So much to get done and so little time. And I've been big time involved in understanding radio clocks this past week. For those of you who don't know, almost all radio stations work on what's called a clock, where each minute and even the half minutes of the hour are planned purposely and carefully so that all the information broadcast comes out on time. And as I dig into this topic a little more, 
generally, the last thing I check at night and the first thing I see in the morning is my clock beside the bed. I'll confess, I'm imprisoned, it almost seems, by time. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not an advocate for less time management in my life. There is something to be said, I think, for being on time. And I don't want to be one who was constantly trying to catch up with the clock. Time stands still for no one, but I hope there always be enough time for a nap. Seriously, as I get older, time becomes more precious to me. And in fact, time could be the most valuable thing we have. And wisdom, as revealed in the Bible, supports that notion. In fact, it's clear that all Jesus Christ wants, really, is our time. In Ephesians we read, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every moment an opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. That's it for segment one here on Weekend Ag Matters. Don't forget to be watching for my reports from Brazil coming up here in the next few days, all courtesy of the folks at Pivot Bio. We'll be back with Mark Magnuson here in segment two right after this. Mark your calendars for an event you won't want to miss. Registration is now open for the Iowa Soybean Association's Innovation to Profit Conference on February 16, 2023 at the FFA Enrichment Center in Ankeny, Iowa. Find research-backed solutions and opportunities to help you create a successful game plan to bring profitability to your operation. Register today by visiting www.iasoybeans.com. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soy Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Mark Magnuson with the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Today I have Matt Herman with me. Matt, could you go ahead and just tell our audience what your job duties are here with the ISA? So my name is Matt Herman and I work with the Iowa Soybean Association and here I'm the Senior Director of Renewable Products Marketing. So what I'm doing here is looking at these kind of burgeoning environmental markets for agricultural products like corn and soybeans, but also the products that these are turned into. So I'm thinking about these carbon programs that are being offered to farmers today to do conservation practices, but then also the markets that are consuming these beans at the end of the day to make things like biofuels, biodiesel and sustainable aviation fuel even. And Matt, something that I've constantly learned over the uh, days of doing this program is just all the uses for soybeans. I'm not sure that the average person is fully aware of that. Do you come across that in your day-to-day work? Oh, yeah. So I think, uh, especially in the kind of renewable energy community, I think people think we just take a soybean and we grind the whole thing up, kind of like corn, and it gets turned into fuel. And we oftentimes have to kind of start with that basic 101, which is, hey, we take this soybean and we process it, and 80% of it is animal feed. Or, or human food, but largely animal feed, and it's always going to be that. And then we have this 20% this vegetable oil, and you know, largely we used to eat that, but then with the ban on trans fats, we've really moved that into industrial uses. So biofuels is a big part of that, but we th- see things like 
you know, lubricants, um, all kinds of things. I just saw a bottle of uh, soy-based DeWalt bar and chain lube you can buy at Home Depot now. So, Matt, let's talk about renewable fuel specifically because I think there's some questions that maybe the typical person doesn't fully understand necessarily some of the language that's used and exactly what uh, you're talking about when it comes to the different renewable fuels. So we'll just start off with the basics first. You've got corn ethanol that we hear a lot about, obviously, and that's what you're putting in your car, your daily driver, probably at the pump. But then we also have all kinds of other renewable fuels. What renewable fuels are there that are on the soybean side? Yeah, so you kind of hit it, right? The main thing that most consumers are familiar with is that corn ethanol, and that's because that's what's blended into your gasoline. Uh, largely on the soybean side, though, we produce a vegetable oil, and that actually looks a lot like diesel fuel. So the fuels that we've turned that soybean oil into are diesel-like substitutes. That first product that we made, we really commercialized about 30 years ago, actually in Western Iowa and Ralston, was called biodiesel. And that was taking that fatter oil, doing a very basic reaction, and coming up with this fuel that can be blended into diesel fuel, you know, used up to 20% in a variety of conditions and applications. Today, we figured out and designed technology that's a little bit more advanced. So we're able to take that same fatter oil molecule, but it put it through a process that looks a lot more like a traditional petroleum refinery. And the benefit of that is we get a fuel out of the back end that looks almost identical to diesel fuel, but gets us very large carbon reductions. And so that means that we can use these fuels in extremely low cold temperatures, which has sometimes been an Achilles heel of biodiesel. We can also use it neat, meaning we can put it 100% in our gas tank unblended and not have any issues or we don't have to modify the engine. That's another huge benefit. Uh, but it does cost a little bit more to make. Uh, the last kind of benefit of this renewable diesel platform, as you may hear it called, is that it can produce this, you know, I'll call it a future fuel, but it's really where the market's driving is sustainable aviation fuel. So this is one way that we can take, you know, biomass, you know, soybean oil in this case, and convert it into a jet fuel replacement. And as we think about the broader end energy industry and what industries are going to be extremely hard to decarbonize, we recognize that things like diesel trucks, airplanes, boats, uh, these things are going to have a much longer runway where they're going to need these liquid fuels. So how available is the diesel fuels that come from soybeans? How available are they? Is it anywhere in, I mean, corn ethanol is king when it comes right. to renewable fuels and its availability. So how close is that availability when you're talking soy diesels? Yeah, so it depends on largely on state policy. So, you know, nationally, if you look at it at the federal level, um, we consume about 60 billion gallons of diesel fuel a year in the variety of applications, everything from farms to trains to, to heating people's homes. Um, of that, about 3 billion gallons total, so about 5%, uh, is some sort of biodiesel or renewable diesel. So if you think about ethanol, we're about a 10% blend on average nationally. In the biodiesel world, we're at about a 5% blend nationally. Now, the story is not equal state by state, kind of like it is with ethanol. And what I mean here is like in the state of Iowa, for example, we have incentives that really support uh, higher blends of biodiesel, these B11, B12, so 12, 13, 14% biodiesel. Similarly in Illinois, many states don't have those policies. Now, if you go to a place like the West Coast where they have really aggressive carbon reduction goals, if you would, uh, you know, if you were driving your diesel-powered, uh, you know, Ford Power Stroke and pulled up to the pump in California and got a gallon of diesel fuel, it's probably got about forty to fifty percent 
renewable content in that market. And so what that reflects is that because that state has such aggressive carbon reduction goals, they're importing large amounts of this biofuel that we produce in the Midwest. We're putting it on rail cars and sending it out to California to be used. So, Matt, I keep hearing then that the demand is going to continue to rise because of, I think, largely these diesel fuels and their capability uh, in terms of using the soy powered version of that. Um, And we've seen a lot of crush facilities now that have either started up or they've changed hands, but they're kind of working towards that goal. Does that mean then that we are just ramping up towards a bigger availability, more production of these types of fuels? Oh, yeah. Um, so a few things that really happened, you know, a couple things happened since 2020, um, like we all know. But one of those big outcomes of COVID um, was the refinery system, these traditional petroleum companies that had these huge refineries around the country started to look at, you know, what's the future of these plants? What are the products they're going to supply? What markets are they going to sell to? And when kind of their petroleum market kind of the bottom fell out in that April, May timeframe when we were all at home, a lot of them exercise those plans that they had long on the shelf to convert these refineries into producing renewable fuels, or at least partially convert. And why that matters is because, you know, we've built, you know, if you go to Ralston, Iowa, or uh, Newton, Iowa, you'd see a 30 million gallon biodiesel plant. So that's about the size. These refineries are producing eight, 900 million gallons. So you're talking about just the size, the magnitude difference is really massive. So you know, we talked about we saw three or four refineries that converted and between those handful of refineries, their announced capacity was the entire current capacity of the whole U.S. industry. And so when they sit back and say, well, where are we going to get all this this oil from, this raw material, it largely comes back to soybeans because we're the elastic supply. If there's more demand, we can grow more. So we largely, we have more soybeans. We've exported historically about 50% of our crop to China as whole beans. So this was the opportunity for large crush players and even new entrants to build these plants domestically, process these soybeans because they knew knew they'd have a home domestically for the oil to disappear it as a renewable fuel. And now they're working to build those meal channels out. So the crush expansion is going to be huge. It's absolutely necessary for the biodiesel and renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel sector to expand it's probably going to have really beneficial aspects for the livestock producer who's likely to start seeing lower cost soybean meal come onto the market as we crush more and more beans here domestically thank you to matt herman of the iowa soybean association for joining us on this week's edition of weekend ag matters coming up next riley smith will wrap up this week's show with segment number three in today's episode riley visits with iowa's fourth district congressman randy feenstra that's coming up next here on weekend ag matters on the iowa agribusiness radio network Welcome to January and the beginning of the new year. While we don't know for sure what 2023 will bring, we always need to do our best to be prepared. The same holds true when you're traveling in winter conditions. Make sure you're always aware of the weather forecast. Winter weather can change in the blink of an eye or vary greatly between different regions. Be certain of what conditions you may face throughout your route. Always allow yourself extra time and drive according to conditions. Remember, four-wheel drive does not mean four-wheel stop. Loss of traction can easily occur in icing conditions, and four-wheel drive won't be able to save you at that point. Be prepared for emergencies by always keeping a winter survival kit with blankets, first aid supplies, sand or litter, a shovel, a light source, and some non-perishable food in the back of your vehicle. Be cautious when you're driving this winter. If you're not comfortable, stay home or get a ride. 
You can also check conditions across the state by calling 511 on your phone or downloading the Iowa 511 app. This message on winter driving safety is from your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's Riley Smith. We're on the phone with Iowa Congressman Randy Feenstra for our monthly chat. First chat of the year with Congressman Feenstra now. Now, first off, of course, we have the new year. So just tell us a little bit on uh, you know, how that new year transition has been and kind of uh, just what's been going on lately. Hey, Riley, great to be on with you. Yeah, you know, we are so excited about the new year. We take the majority. The Republicans take the majority. And there's so many things that we want to get done, especially when it comes to agriculture, especially this is the year. This is the farm bill year that every five years we have it. So we're prepping for that, prepping to where the hearings are going to be. We're, we're hoping that an announcement's going to be made here shortly that we have a hearing in Iowa, um, working with that. But before that all starts, we have to elect a speaker of the house and uh, so uh, nancy pelosi was speaker now we take over the majority the republicans do and we have to uh, uh, nominate a speaker and uh, mccarthy right now has you have to have 218 votes and he has about 200 so we're working through that process uh, that's always a challenge but uh, we're hoping that gets resolved here in the next 24 hours uh, and then we can move on to a lot of big issues. And I think probably the big issue right now, especially in the farming community, is is trying to tackle uh, WOTUS, Waters of the U.S., that final new rule that came out. And so we're working with uh, uh, advocating to the EPA and Michael Regan and to the Biden administration how catastrophic this EPA rule doubling down on the significance of the nexus test and how the federal government can regulate large areas of farmland miles and miles nearest to navigatable waters. And, you know, when they talk about navigatable waters, they're, they're looking at little creeks, little streams, and this could be catastrophic for a farming community if they need permits to even move dirt, build fences, and all this other stuff. So this is probably the hot topic of the day right now in the farming community. Right, of course, and you know that uh, WOTUS is every farmer's uh, uh, favorite word, and of course I say that with uh, air quotes, but... You know, how how are we going to be able to navigate this situation and kind of maybe uh, be able to maybe see both sides a little bit and still keep the farmer in mind on WOTUS? Right. I, this has become a real rural versus a city issue. Uh, you know, talking to my colleagues, you know, everybody in the Midwest gets it. I mean, they understand how catastrophic this is going to be uh, to our producers and to our farmers. Uh, the cities, you know, they just look at it and say, well, we need clean water. Well, you have to understand that our farming community has done a great job with buffer strips and, and terraces and, and cover crops and all these things. And we want to address this stuff in the farm bill, right? That's why we have the farm bill coming up this year. And, and we want to uh, make sure that we capture a lot of this stuff in, in voluntary conservation. Uh, and then also trying to change uh, the the ruling of, of what the EPA is pushing in the farm bill, but uh, we'd rather do it before the farm bill because the farm bill would not go into effect probably until November or December of next year. So uh, this is sort of on the hot plate of, of looking what, what policy we can do here already uh, mid January, February. But before that happens, we also have to set up committees and uh, that probably won't happen to the end of January. Right. And, you know, with that farm bill process, you know, what have you been hearing, especially from farmers in your area? I know a lot of the general consensus recently has been, 
make some changes, but still keep intact the programs that are working. Exactly. I mean, there's so many great programs that are working, especially when it comes to crop and livestock protection. There's a safety net there. I think there might be a few tweaks to increase, uh, to look at inputs when we talk about crop and livestock protection. Um, but, but also in the farm bill, a couple of things that we're looking at is obviously fairness and transparency in the cattle markets, making sure that we have greater access to farm market or foreign markets. Uh, you know, this is a big deal. We're seeing that obviously with the USMCA right now with Mexico accounting for 25% of the U S uh, corn exports. Uh, we've got to resolve this and we think we can do that through the farm bill or, the Biden administration actually doing their job and, and U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai demanding uh, that uh, President uh, of Mexico, Obrador, uh, you know, changes his mind on, on how this all, all plays out. And then also expanding biofuels production, uh, you know, energy title, Title IX. I think this is a big deal with ethanol and biodiesel that we can get some things done there. So, you know, these are sort of the, the big overarching items that we see in the farm bill and then obviously i noted conservation already um you know and wilderness regulations i mean these are the things that that are, are really can be tied into this farm bill as we move forward well and of course we've talked about this so many times but it's all about uh being out there to represent and kind of stand up for the american farmer and you know we've seen it recently and there's been a lot of you know maybe arbitrary restrictions from other countries and even other states on farming and you know, like we've said uh, to each other before, nobody knows better how to uh, keep track of farming or to handle farming than the farmers themselves. Exactly right. Local control, local control is so important. And, and you think about the, the, the decades that have happened since Norman Borlaug, you know, changed uh, the genetics to, to grow more, more uh, grain uh, around the world. And, and now we're fighting it again uh, with the Mexican president. And, you know, the great thing, it got pushed to 2025. Uh, to phase out uh, biotech corn, but we have to we have to make sure that never happens. And there's an agreement through the USMCA that this this there, there's remedies to to, to uh, you know figure out how we handle this. And that's all I ask. I ask the Biden administration is you've got the you've got the agreement, use it. Uh, so uh, that's what we're working with on on that front. And and frankly, you, you talk about trade around the world. I mean, we have such a great opportunity to to increase our trade. Uh, from from European countries to the Pacific Rim, I mean, there are so many uh, countries want our product, and it's just a matter of having the ability and the trade representation to get it done. And again, that's what we're pushing the agenda on uh, through the Biden administration to to be active in that role of of making trade happen. All right, and of course, you're working on some uh, other legislation as well. Uh, first off, let's talk a little bit on the uh, Quantum and Practice Act. We talked about this last time. Uh, do you have any updates on that legislation? Well, uh, the, the Quantum uh, in Practice Act, which, which simply simply says is that agriculture is going to be involved in, in, uh, in quantum uh, simulations and molecular simulations. And why do we want that? Is because it creates more efficiency when it comes to farmland, when it comes to fertilizer. Uh, you know, it, it's just amazing that we do not want to be left out on this new way of, of, of doing computing. So that's what this act does. We're reintroducing the bill. We're getting a lot of co-signers on the bill. Again, this is another bill that I think could pass fairly quickly once we get it to the floor and, and, and uh, we, we get it uh, teed up. So, again, it's just another thing for our farming community that I thought of that says, you know what, we have to be involved when it comes to scientific ingenuity. Uh, we've seen this at the Farm Progress Show, all the technology that's out there and the ability. We need to be on the cutting edge. 
And that's where I'm all about is making sure that, that we are, that we can uh, compete with the rest of the world and be even more efficient. Right, and that ties in with your Precision Agriculture Loan Program Act in uh, getting that technology out to farmers, because I honestly think that a lot of people don't realize how closely intertwined um, really high-tech technology uh, and agriculture are related. Yeah, Riley, you hit it on the head. We saw this at the Farm Progress Show. There's so much great technology out there to create efficiency and productivity for our farming community. And, and frankly, it's just to retrofit existing equipment with these new technologies. Now, there's a cost, and that's, that's where my bill came about and saying, all right, we've got to lower that cost for the producer uh, to make sure that they can buy this new technology. So through the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we are trying to set up a loan program. It's a loan program, not a grant program, a loan program that, that uh, farmers can buy this new technology at a low interest rate and, and that they can start using it to be effective and more efficient and, and get more profitability. The bottom line is, again, being value-added, uh, adding more profitability to the, to the farmer. And, and uh, I, I look at this and say, we have a great opportunity here, and it's another bill that hopefully we can get teed up and, and get passed in short order. All right. And are there uh, you know, any other things going on maybe in the coming year that you'd like to talk about right now and let our listeners know? Well, the, the, the big thing is that, that we, we want to make sure that, that we have all, uh, you know, all voices heard when it comes to that farm bill. And, and I really am asking the farming community, if you have thoughts, ideas, concerns, reach out to, to myself uh, and, and please tell me your ideas. So that's at feenstra.house.gov. Uh, that is, you know, if, if anybody has ideas or thoughts, feenstra.house.gov, please just, just send me an email or, or uh, just a little note saying, hey, I think this is important for the farm bill because we got one shot at this every five years, and, and we want to make sure that our farmers in, in western, northwest Iowa are taken, well, I should say all of Iowa are taken care of. So, All right, again, that is feenstra.house.gov for our listeners who are interested. Congressman Feenstra, thanks for taking the time to visit with us today, and uh, good luck as you uh, continue through this congressional session. Thanks, Riley. It's always great to be on with you, and I'm always fighting for the producers. That again was Iowa 4th District Congressman Randy Feenstra. That's it for today's episode of Weekend Ag Matters. Thanks again for tuning in. You can listen to this episode and more by going to the podcast tab on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network website at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Mark Magnuson, and Dustin Huffman, I'm Riley Smith, wishing you a great rest of your weekend. Join us again next week for more Weekend Ag Matters.